Hi, everybody. Welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking. Today's guest is the president of Bianco Research, headquartered in Chicago, also a guy with the tons of Twitter followers. Quite a lot, I have to say. Jim Bianco. Hey, Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Alf. Good morning. Good afternoon for you. Yeah, afternoon all over here in Europe. And uh, what I see right here is that we got the news last night we got to talk about. And it's our friend, Neil Kashkari from the uh, Federal Reserve Board of Presidents that came, comes out and says, I am delighted, Jim. He's delighted of the reaction post Jackson Hole speech. So I want to get your take on the Jackson Hole speech and on what the hell Kashkari means here. Yeah, let me start with he's taking issue with the word delighted. He was saying that he's happy that the market reacted as if there's a difference between the word delighted and the word happy. He went on to say, too, that he was concerned that the markets were rallying through the month of July and into early August, in other words, loosening financial conditions. Um, really, what he's trying to say is that the Federal Reserve, him in particular, and remember, before this whole episode of inflation, he was a noted dove. And he's saying that the way that the Fed is going to get inflation under control is to tighten financial conditions. Now, that's a euphemism for make you poor. Make the markets go down. You lose money. You yell at your wife. You stop spending it on stuff. That brings prices down. I mean, let's call it what it is. Um, and so that's what he was happy about. I understand what he was attempting to say, that inflation impacts 100% of the population. Everybody sees prices rising. Elon Musk sees it rising at Tesla and SpaceX. People on assistance see uh, ma, their, their, their prices rising as well, too, and everybody in between. Those on the bottom end, the bottom 40% or so, they're really hurt by inflation. So if you could take the people that can afford some pain, equity holders, by tightening financial conditions and getting them to back off on their spending, to bring down inflation, that's what he's happy about. Now, I think he had a poor choice of words because it makes it sound like he's doing a victory dance that people are losing money and that a trillion dollars of wealth was wiped off of the stock market on Friday. That's not what I think he wanted to convey, but that's what he actually did convey. And to your other point, Jackson Hole, I think that Powell's speech was interesting on two levels. One was, it was an eight-minute speech. It was about half the length of his speech that they usually get. Now, now, normally, Jackson Hole is an academic conference. It is, all the invitees are academics and a couple of private sector economists that hold specific positions, like the president of the National Association of Business Economists or something along those lines. Those are usually private sector people. So you don't have a lot of Wall Street economists at this thing. You don't have any of them, as a matter of fact, in a bunch of journals. And it is supposed to be kind of a big picture type of place where we talk about big themes. And the big theme, they did. And all the presentations, they were all academic presentations. They talked about big, big themes. But Powell's speech was not a big theme. It was eight minutes. And it was, I think uh, you said it, you know, no pivot my ass is basically what it was. And that, that's, that's not a big theme. What that was, in my opinion, was a correction to the July press conference, 
we're roughly near neutral. We're no longer going to use forward guidance. We're going to be day to day on the data. We're going to be meeting to meeting on the data. What the market interpreted that as meaning is, oh, we're going to see weakening inflation and you're going to stop raising rates and eventually you're going to start cutting rates. So he used the speech for one thing, and that was there will be no pivot. There will be no cutting of rates next year. The Fed is committed for a long time to keep rates up to try and rein in inflation. And it was a bit out of character for what is usually discussed at Jackson Hole's big picture ideas. Uh, and it just uh, it had a big reaction in the market because I think that the market had a combination of two things. One, it was probably banking on some sort of pivot from the Fed, and that was coming out of the market. And two, I think it's a fear that, well, now the Fed's just going to overdo it. They're going to tighten too much. They're going to they're going to get rid of inflation by breaking the economy and that they're going to needlessly cause a deeper recession than we need to have. And that's why I think you're seeing the bad reaction in markets over the last couple of days. Jim, I have to agree with basically everything you said. And the, art, the title of the article on the Macro Compass, Fat Pivot My Ass, although my couple of friends told me to name it Fat Pivot My Alf, to be more polite. But, <laughs> I guess the message goes through anyway. It was short and ambiguous, but the point you made before about um, Kashkari, I think, is interesting because this is the first time I can remember of, generally speaking, Fed members being, quote unquote, happy about tightening financial conditions. So I want to get your take on the fact that Powell seems to be relatively at ease with putting the economy through some pain, again, quoting him from his Jackson Hole speech, and the fact that Fed members in general don't seem to be preoccupied at all with tightening financial conditions. Do you think there is a level of especially real economic pain that puts the Federal Reserve through some thinking process, through some nuances at least, or it's just going to be full on until inflation is consistently showing downward pressure towards 2%? You've just hit on the question uh, for financial markets right now. And that is when it's easy for the, let me back up for everybody. The last payroll report, uh, we're talking a couple of days before the uh, August payroll report comes out, but the last one in July was 538,000 jobs. Mm -hmm. It's easy for the Federal Reserve to beat on their chest hawkish when you're creating half a million jobs a year. It's not so easy to talk about being hawkish when you see a serious downturn and job losses in the economy. But we don't have that now. And that is still to be determined. There, all this hawkish talk is fine now because you've got the economy somewhat behaving. But let's you know see a real spike in unemployment claims. Let's see a real downturn in payroll growth. And then let's see Jay come out and say, I know you lost your job, but I still have to keep raising rates. He hasn't been pressured yet. And that is an open question. There's a lot of, and I've argued, first of all, this is unprecedented. We have no historical example. I happen to believe that they're going to stay the course and stay tight, raise rates and deal with inflation. But I understand, I'm not going to plant my flag in the ground and say, that's it. It's a hill I'm going to die on. I understand the argument that you wait until we get some weak data. They will just cave like you won't believe. And once they're in, they will start cutting rates to start dealing with uh, rising unemployment. Okay, when and if the unemployment rate rises, we'll have to see 
whether or not that happens. So that is the question right now. My take is I think there is an internal debate within the Federal Reserve right now. There is a number of people at the Fed that believe that the um, that the inflation rate is undergoing some kind of a secular change and that it is going to be higher and more persistent for longer. A lot of the speeches at Jackson Hole were of that ilk uh, last weekend talking about that. I think there's a number of staffers headed by Lael Brainerd at the Fed that don't believe that, that believe that what we're seeing with inflation is an echo of the pandemic. It will eventually dissipate and go back to 2%, and some kind of a pre-pandemic world will emerge from that very little different. Now, I don't happen to believe that. I'm more in the persistent secular change camp is underway. We could explore that. Mm -hmm. But those are the battle lines that are being drawn right now. And of course, whenever you make the case that there is a secular change going on, you're arguing those famous words on Wall Street, right? This time is different. And most of the time when you say this time is different, it's not. It's not. And But when, when it is different, it matters quite a bit. And that's really the question is, is it really different this time? I happen to think it is. Yeah. So, Jim, we need to explore this topic. It's paramount important. I want to start from what the bond market is saying. So if I look at the forward inflation swap curve, so the expectations trader are pricing in for inflation in two years from now, one and a half years from now, it's already priced in to be two and a half percent. So it's a very quick, sharp decline all the way down to somewhere acceptable levels for the Federal Reserve. What about nominal yields? Also forward nominal yields are pricing in basically a good old two and a half to three percent terminal rate, right? Or let's say equilibrium nominal rate for the economy. Again, not a massive change at all. So the bond market seems to be very strongly opinionated, Jim, that not only inflation is going to come down very quickly, but also that long-term nominal yields are just going to reflect basically what we saw pre-pandemic. Bond market, very strong opinion. Now, let's ask Jim, can you elaborate on why do you differ, let's say, from this base case scenario? How much do you differ and why that is the case? Well, let's start with the, uh, let's start with the, the basics here. Um, what we're talking about is in the fixed income market, you can pretty much slice and dice up either the swaps market or the current coupon curve market and get predictions or get expectations of where the market thinks things are going to go. If you look at the one year yield, to keep it simple for people, if I look at where the yield is of the one year T-bill today and I look at the yield of the two year note today, I could back into what would be the one-year yield in one year that yeah. makes the one-year yield today plus that yield equal to two-year note? And you could just keep going and going with that, and you can get predictions about or expectations about where the market thinks things are going to go. Mm-hmm. Now, that is very important because it tells you what's priced in and obviously expected. But that doesn't mean that's what's going to happen. No. The track records of these forward curves, not very good especially when it comes to the inflation the inflation swaps curve. There are derivatives that trade on puts and calls that trade on inflation, and you could construct an inflation swaps curve. It is unchanged for the last 12 years. It always thinks wherever the inflation rate is, what I mean by unchanged, is wherever the inflation rate is, in four or five quarters, it will be 2% and stay there forever. It thought that in 2020 when we were 
practically at zero on the inflation rate. After the inflation rate hit two and a half and on its way to nine every single day, it kept saying, today is the high and we're going to go back to 2%. So the track record of what is actually going to happen is not nearly as good. Now, throw in there one other thing. There, there's, the, there's the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities or TIPS market. That market, I think, is not reflective of inflation expectations as more as it's reflective of in um, liquidity. Before the pandemic, the Federal Reserve owned 9% of the TIPS market. Today, they own 27% of the TIPS market. And they're going to start reducing it with QT. They're the biggest player in that market. And their buying of QE or their selling or, or lack of buying through QT dominates that market. So what it measures is changes in liquidity. Now, liquidity and inflation are somewhat related. So they'll kind of move together. So what I'm trying to say is, the market has an expectation that inflation is is going to be a one-time surge, go away, stay at 2% forever. Historically speaking, it's not a very good indicator of what will happen. Mm -hmm. Remember, a year ago, a year ago to this day that we're talking, the forward Fed fund futures market was saying that the Fed would raise rates one time 25 basis points in all of 2022. So far, they've got nine rate hikes done through July, and another five are expected through the end of the year. Way, way off is what it was. So it does, like I said, it's important because it tells you what the market expects, yeah. but don't confuse that with what will happen. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to understand, Jim. So we're talking about market expectations of referring to inflation swaps and nominal yields and forwards not because that's going to happen, but because we need to understand what the, this combined mind, which is the bond market in aggregate, is actually settling at current expectations today about the future. So it gives us a bit of a, of a yardstick, effectively, to make up our own opinion, whether that prized in event is likely to happen or not. So you're never trading or investing based on absolute belief. You have to invest against what's priced in, right? So today's bond market has this opinion. And coming back to the macro question, Jim, it seems to me that your opinion is different. So you think the bond market is not accurately predicting the secular shifts that you think are happening right under the surface a bit. So can you guide us a bit towards which side of the camp are, are you standing? Are you standing with Brainard when it comes to inflation is going to go back to 2%, very little change compared to pre-pandemic or not? And why is your opinion different? No, I, I'm I'm of the opinion that there was a secular change in the economy. If I if I was to align myself with somebody, mm -hmm. it's probably Zoltan Posner, Credit Suisse, and his recent machinations about the secular change in the economy. The way that I like to say it is during the 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 period before 2020, there was let's call it three bubbles, and they were not in the financial markets. They were the bubble of cheap labor through globalization. They were the bubble of cheap goods in abundance through um, China. And they were, the, they were the bubble of dirt cheap energy from Russia. Globalization held down wages, kept people from getting raises. And we've all seen the charts that real wage growth has been stagnant for 20 years. Yeah. So why didn't we have a revolution since everybody was getting wealthier, but wages were stagnant? Because we subsidized that with cheap goods from 
from uh, uh, China. And we subsidize that with cheap energy to keep those goods cheap from Russia. Now comes 2020. And all of us, and even in the lead up to 2020, the trade wars that Trump started around 2018 uh, and the emergence of China as a dominant uh, economic power, and the catalyst was sped up by the, the pandemic, that all of these are reversing. Globalization is now giving way to reshoring because of political considerations. The cheap abundance of products that we get from China is now being questioned at least in the short term, because of this constant zero COVID policy that they have. And you've probably seen as well as I have the, the, the short videos on Twitter. There was one I saw last week that uh, there were people in, a, in an Ikea and somebody was in the Ikea that tested positive for COVID and there was a panic. You got to get out of the Ikea in the next five minutes or the, the authorities are going to chain the door shut and you're going to be stuck in there for weeks on it or days, if not a couple of weeks until everybody tests positive and you got to get out. That is highly disruptive for their economy, the zero COVID policy. And it is creating um, a lack of goods coming from China and then throw in Russia. One of the things that has kept Europe competitive in the world on a manufacturing basis is dirt cheap energy. All, it, all manufacturing processes need cheap energy. I shudder to what it's going to be like the economics of making cars in Stuttgart and in Munich at BMW and at Mercedes if we continue to see these sky high natural gas prices. The, the cost of making those cars is just going to go through the roof and it's going to make Europe uneconomic if this persists. And that's from Russia shutting off the, or slowing down the gas pipelines to Europe as part of the tit for tat with the Ukraine war. So all of these global things that have helped to keep inflation down, I think are reversing. And because they're reversing, does that mean we're destined to have persistently high inflation forever? No. But what it does mean is the world has to adjust to a new reality, reshoring, Russia is no longer the, the 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 font of cheap energy that it was. We're going to have to find cheap energy from other sources. China is not going to be the, the 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 manufacturer of the world that is just going to be producing cheap goods. That's going to offset. You don't get a raise, but everything gets cheaper at the big box retailer. But instead of making that adjustment, we want to have an argument as to whether or not there actually is a secular change. And that argument, I think, is best personified by work from home. Uh, Nick Bloom at Stanford University has done a lot of groundbreaking work at work from home. And he says, you know, roughly 5% of the workforce was working from home pre-pandemic or remote work. Remote, rem I gotta, I'm, I'm using the words interchangeably. Work from home, meaning all five days or remote work some of the days. Yeah. Today, it's about a third of the workforce. And if you ask a lot of people in the financial services business, what's coming next? And the answer you'll get is everybody's going to return to the office. Dave Solomon of Goldman Sachs has said, don't worry, in 2024, 2025, Manhattan will look like it looked in 2019. All the offices in Midtown will be uh, packed with people. I don't think they are. I think that this is a new reality. And the problem is financial services seems to be pushing the hardest against work from home. Pushing the least against that is tech. And everybody else is somewhere in between. So 
the question is, are we seeing secular changes? I think we are. What does that mean? That means restructuring and reinvestment to meet the new world. The problem is most people want to debate whether or not they should be spending trillions of dollars to restructure their businesses from work from home or from uh, not expecting cheap energy from Russia or not expecting cheap goods from China anymore, not worrying about the reshoring. They want to debate that. The last thought I would give you is a number of people have likened this to the late 1940s after World War II. And I agree, that's a great analogy for what happened. But there was a big difference. In 1947, Americans that are, were not walking around going, when do I get my job back making Sherman tanks or fighter planes? Like I did in 1944. They knew that world was over and they knew we were going to transition to something new. But a fair number of people in 2022 are saying, when's, it, when's 2019 going to return? You hear that as return to normal. When are we going to return to some pre-pandemic world? We're not ready to accept, like in 1947, we're not going back. We're going forward to something different. And that doesn't mean we have to have inflation forever, but it means that we have to restructure the economy. And we're not ready to do that right now. And that's why I think we see all of this uncertainty and volatility in markets because we're in a state of flux. So, Jim, from my experience, if you have a structural thesis that involves some repricing of the probability distributions, because what you just defined is a world where it doesn't mean we're going to get 8% inflation every year, but it means that the distribution of this inflation is more skewed towards the right. We have to adjust a bit to a new normal, not the old one, but rather a new setup. But when you actually have this opinion that is not really reflected in markets that much, because we just discussed about markets pricing in as base case that we basically return back to 2019, almost. That's what effectively it's priced in, especially in the bond market. Where do you think the best ways to allocate capital on a very long-term perspective lie right now? Where do you think the market is the most mispriced for this new paradigm you're discussing? Yeah, so you're right. Um, count me in the camp that is open to the idea that 9.1% inflation in the United States was the peak. Um, if um, I push back a little bit on that, what core inflation might in the next few months make a new high. Its peak is 6.5% back in March. It has a chance of maybe making a marginally higher high in the next few months. But I also think that what that means is when it settles out, it might settle out at three and a half, four, maybe as high as five. And to put that in, so what difference does that make? Well, the Federal Reserve, I think, is correct to say that the neutral funds rate is somewhere around 50 basis points above the inflation rate. Mm -hmm. If the inflation rate settles out at three and a half to four, four and a half, that means that the funds rate is going to go to four and a half to four to five percent, half a basis, half a percent above the inflation rate and stay there for a long period of time. It's not going to go back to two or one anytime soon. We're only halfway through the rate hikes and there will be no rate cuts once we're done with the rate hikes. That's where that becomes a big deal. So when you talk about asset allocation, what that suggests is higher interest rates for a longer period of time. You see this in the way that the markets are trading, the long duration assets. Technology is considered a long duration asset. 30-year bonds are considered a long-duration asset in the fixed income space, are getting wrecked 
they're having some of the worst performances that we've ever seen. The bond market, I tweet out this chart all the time. If you look at the history of good statistics, is undergoing its worst year-to-date return ever. And that's and that even includes in the 70s and the 60s if we had decent data. I've seen some spotty data on that as well. We have good data from the mid-70s forward. Uh, and the reason is, is because I think the bond market is adjusting to that reality. So long duration assets are definitely a place that are going to need to be avoided until we get through this whole period. On the other side, if there is, you believe a restructuring is coming to play, what you've also seen is the value stocks or the value end of the market has been outperforming the growth end of the market. So industrials, manufacturing, basic materials, uh, those types of, of industries have been doing better. One, they're involved with the inflation trade because they, they deal with stuff and yeah. the price of stuff is going up to make it simple. And second of all, if there is a restructuring coming, we have to re rebuild the port system, rebuild the transportation system, rebuild the manufacturing system, because we, it's no longer going to be just stuff it on a boat from China, send it through the port of Los Angeles, and there you go. There's your cheap goods. Your cheap goods are going to have to come from other places and other things as well, too. That's going to require a lot of spending and a lot of uh, changes there. That's how I think the world is going to be restructured. But again, the problem with that second part about the value part um, doing better than the growth part in general over the last 18 months or so is it also requires a recognition that that's the world we have to be in. And like I said, I'm not so sure we're ready for that recognition right now. We still want to argue whether or not there is a secular change underway. Jim, it's always a fantastic pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for all the insights. I just want to make sure that you get the chance to tell the audience where they can find more about Jim Bianco if they don't know yet, which is terrible. But if they don't know, where can they find more about you? <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Bianco Research or Jim Bianco um, on LinkedIn or my website, BiancoResearch.com. Well, Jim, thanks again for being here with us. And uh, I hope I can have you back soon for an update. Thank you.